0: The information provided on this podcast is not legal advice and is intended for the sole purpose of providing education and legal information. Laws change over time, and the information provided on this podcast may not be up to date. We make no warranty, express or implied, regarding the information provided by our team or our guests on this podcast. The information should not be construed as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with us or any of our guests on the podcast. If you would like to consult with an attorney, please call 1-800-VICTIMS. That's 1-800-842-8467. For attorney referral contact information. This podcast provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and information to help educate crime victims on their rights. Some content will include topics and materials that may involve descriptions of violence or assaults which can be distressing to victims and survivors. It may also impact service providers experiencing vicarious trauma. Podcasting from the Victims of Crime Resource Center, this is Knowledge is Power, Victim to Survivor, a podcast series where we help crime victims understand their rights so they can go from victims to survivors. On this episode, we'll be discussing immigration. Hello everyone. It's me again, your humble host, Nima Malavi from the Victim of Crime Resource Center. Today it's my pleasure to welcome in Blake Nordahl into the podcast. Blake is a supervising attorney of the Immigration Law Clinic at McGeorge School of Law. On today's show, we'll be discussing victims' rights in the context of immigration. How are you doing today, Blake? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Let's get right into it. I want to start by talking a little bit about the Violence Against Women's Act, or VAWA for short. Can you tell us a little bit about what the
1: uh, Violence Against Women's Act is and and who does it protect? Sure. So the Violence Against Women Act is a federal law that's been uh, a law for over 20 years and relevant to immigrants is it provides potentially a pathway to permanent resident status for undocumented folks who have been battered or subjected to extreme cruelty by a spouse who is a lawful permanent resident or a U.S. citizen.
0: And uh, as far as the the folks that, that it protects, are these protections only provided to women or are they provided to men as well?
1: No, it, it all, uh, it's not just to women, although, of course, it's called the Violence Against Women Act. We have represented men in this application process before. But basically, the individual has to show that they've been battered or subjected to some sort of uh, emotional abuse, that they are married to a lawful permanent resident or a U.S. citizen, that they have good moral character generally, that they're at least at one point in time, were living with that. Relative that U.S. citizen or permanent resident spouse uh, here in the United States.
0: Now, you mentioned that the two criteria for uh, qualifying are to be battered or to be subjected to extreme cruelty. Now, extreme cruelty kind of sounds like a like a broad term. Could you maybe provide just a little bit of information as far as what would constitute extreme cruelty?
1: Yeah, so there's no one thing that uh, factor that is extreme cruelty. But what we want to do is when we're working with clients, and and we find somebody who does uh, have potentially this situation, either, you know, I've mentioned spouses, but there's also elder abuse, it might be that you were uh, abused uh, by an adult uh, US citizen child, for example. It also, be a child who's abused by a U.S. citizen or permanent resident parents. So just the, the majority of the time, though, there is a spousal relationship. And in terms of extreme cruelty, the, 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 the factors that are listed by immigration in, include things like threats, harassment, social isolation. You know, we, we frequently will see well, if you call the police on me, I'm gonna deport. I'm gonna get you deported. You know, so uh, we see this like the, the threat of uh, holding the fact that the person is in a vulnerable situation because they are undocumented, using that against the individual. That's a that's a frequent thing that we see in the clinic that I work at.
0: Almost as a form of coercion, it would seem like. Yes. And what are the steps for accessing these protections under VAWA if someone finds themselves in that position?
1: Yeah, so basically in a normal or in a typical family-based immigration application, you have the the U.S. citizen or the permanent resident relative files a petition with immigration that starts the process to obtain legal status. And what VAWA tries to do is allow the individual to go ahead and make that application, even though this abusive uh, relative is not going to be doing that for them. And they don't need to stay in that relationship in order just to continue the process with immigration. So yeah, that first step is a self-petition. The individual files their own petition with USCIS that uh, goes over the application requirements, uh, some of which I've already I mentioned earlier. Okay, and just
0: to just to clarify, so this would provide an independent path or an independent basis for uh, for citizenship ultimately.
1: Eventually, the individual could apply for citizenship. It's a it's a essentially you could look at it as a three part process. First, that self petition that identifying yourself as a survivor of domestic violence. That meets the other requirements, then potentially an application for permanent resident status, and then ultimately, eventually, an application for US citizenship. That's right. But there's a there, in addition to the the requirements which we mentioned, you know, including residence in the United States, good moral character, having resided with the abuser at some point in the past, and currently living in the United States. In addition to those requirements, there's also, uh, we might call them speed bumps along the way or potentially barriers to the application process. And so that's where you need to meet with a qualified immigration attorney to ensure not just that you meet the basic eligibility requirements, but that you also uh, are not subject to a ground of inadmissibility or deportability That is going to prevent, not only prevent you from obtaining that status, but potentially place you into removal proceedings. And
0: just to uh, be clear here, some of the grounds for deportability, could you maybe just give us an overview of what some of those could be?
1: Yeah, so... Uh maybe, uh, well, the first one for a lot of individuals for VAWA, um, and this isn't actually in a benefit, is, is being present in the United States without inspection. So the individual who came into the United States without permission, that's automatically waived under VAWA. However, uh, m- most other uh, grounds uh, are, well, they're not automatically waived. And on top of that uh, they're they're somewhat difficult and require extra steps so let's just even think about the individual who maybe has a deportation in their past and then has come back into the United States so that in, somebody who's been deported and then and then comes back mm-hmm. well, that individual is inadmissible not just for being present without inspection but also having a deportation and so uh they're going to be inadmissible. They're going to be subject to uh, potentially being, you know, placed again into deportation proceedings. There is, uh, and this gets a little bit complex, but there is a waiver even for that individual under VAWA, but they must show that that deportation or that subsequent reentry was somehow connected to the abuse. Hmm. And if they're not able to do that, then they're not going to get the waiver and the application would be denied. Other more, you know, other common form, and that, that's a very common issue that we see as somebody who's been deported or, 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 and then returned. We also, you're looking at individuals who might have convictions for maybe mm-hmm. uh, drug use or crimes of moral turpitude, theft offenses, for example. And again, what we're looking at uh, on those offenses is is there somehow a link that we can show that uh, the conviction? or the ground of inadmissibility is related to the abuse. I see, fascinating.
0: Now, those are obviously some very complex topics. If some of our listeners have more information or if they would like to get more information about anything that we've discussed under VAWA, do you have any resources or any, can you recommend any ways in which um, folks can get some more
1: information about any of these topics? There's a few great organizations in the Sacramento area where we're located. So first of all, there's ourselves, the Immigration Clinic at McGeorge. And I can give that number, it's 916-340-6080. There's also a few other organizations that we work closely with and, uh, and, and do excellent work. And that includes Opening Doors, CRLAF. And uh, in general, uh, there's an organization in Sacramento, kind of an umbrella organization known as the Fuel Network, which is was created by the city of Sacramento about two years ago to help provide resources to folks who are undocumented or have uh, uh, no status and uh, need assistance. And for
0: all of our listeners out there, we'll go ahead and provide all of the information for those organizations in the uh, written portion uh, in the text uh, under the where you can access the podcasts. Okay, thank you so much for that information, Blake. Let's uh, move on and talk a little bit about U visas. Uh, can you ta- can you explain
1: what a U visa is and how it can help an undocumented person? Sure. There's a couple key differences uh, between a U visa and the VAWA application we were just speaking about. So if if you remember when we were talking about VAWA, we there's a requirement that the perpetrator of the crime has some sort of family relationship to the applicant, plus that that person had legal status, either that they were a US citizen or permanent resident. Well, for the U visa, neither of those are required. It's it's, uh, U visas for survivors of crimes of violence who suffered substantial, either physical or emotional harm, and were willing and did cooperate with law enforcement uh, and reasonable requests for assistance.
0: Okay, and just to make sure I understand, Blake, what qualifies as as abuse uh, under under a U visa?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question in terms of what qualifies as abuse. So, what the regulations or the law states is that there's no one single factor that uh, means that this is substantial abuse, right? And so, they're looking at. Um, several factors, and and in addition, possibly to other factors that might not be on my list. But some of the things that you're looking at to see if the abuse was substantial is, was there a physical or emotional harm? I think that's abuse. And then whether it reaches the level of substantial, you're looking at, well, what was the uh, nature of the injury? What was the duration of the conduct what was the conduct on the part of the perpetrator? So, you know, was the perpetrator's actions could have been severe, even though the harm wasn't severe. So you're looking at the perpetrator's conduct, you're looking at the harm itself, the uh, duration of the harm. So, you know, some examples might be if you're looking at somebody who is involved in, uh, in a domestic abuse situation, uh, there might be only one time, for example, that they called the police And the time that they called the police or that maybe even the neighbor called the police or a friend called the police, it doesn't need to be the applicant themselves that called the police. But it's not that uh, we're looking at just that one isolated event where law enforcement was involved. The applicant who's applying for the U visa can describe the other uh, incidents that happened through the course of that relationship. And you're looking at the totality of the circumstances that that creates the substantial harm. You're also looking at the length of the injury. So if an emotional injury or psychological injury is that long lasting in addition to physical injuries.
0: Okay. Now, as far as uh, if, our, if our listeners believe that they might qualify for a, for a U visa, what sort of steps would you recommend they take to actually start the process of, of acquiring one?
1: Well, again, just like under the VAWA uh, process, they certainly need to be speaking with an immigration attorney before making any application. There was just this past uh, year, the current Trump administration has issued a rule, which is that if an application is denied, so an affirmative application like an application for VAWA or even for a U visa, that it could start the deportation process. So we haven't actually seen uh, that started, but the policy has been implemented. Uh, it's it, we just we're waiting to see how it's going to be carried out at the local level. But in the past, that's a change from the past. Where in the past, if you had an application that uh, for as a survivor of a crime of violence, like a VAWA application or a U U-Visa application, and the application was denied simply because maybe you didn't meet all of the required elements, that would not trigger the individual being placed into removal proceedings. But under the current guidelines, uh, I believe of, as of this fall, the guidelines state that the individual could and will be placed into removal proceedings in that situation. But I do want to mention that at the local level, we haven't seen seen that carried out yet. And that might speak to the importance of
0: speaking to an attorney, someone qualified to, uh, you know, discuss these issues before one submits an application, I would assume.
1: Definitely. And before you're making any application with immigration at any time, you should always be speaking with a qualified individual, qualified attorney that practices immigration regularly. One of, one of the things I was just going to mention, we've talked about, well, the individual has to show that they were willing to cooperate with law enforcement. So what it, what does that mean? Well, what it, ultimately means procedurally is that the local law enforcement agency like the police uh, police department sheriff's office or the district attorney is going to sign a certification that indicates that the individual was a victim of a qualifying crime and did uh, suffer substantial harm and did cooperate with law enforcement so with respect to this
0: certification, is that something that the survivor would ask the police to provide, or is that something that the police would do just as a matter of course?
1: No, we'll, we'll see it occasionally where, especially at the district attorney's office, they will, uh, they will the victim witness uh, advocate will mention to somebody that uh, they give them some resources of uh, organizations that help uh, immigrants, uh, when they see that the person has been uh, a victim of a of a qualifying crime of violence. But for the most part, you, they're not going to be informed of these rights, and they're going to need to seek out assistance on their own. And it's the attorneys, like myself and others, that re- make that request with the law enforcement agency to sign the certified form and... Uh, That is one of the first elements or requirements of submitting that application for a U-Visa. Once the law enforcement agency signs it, then the individual has six months to submit their application with immigration. I was going to mention that, for example, the the district attorney's office here in Sacramento County actually has information on their website about how to make the request for the U-Visa certification. And just one thing I wanted to
0: clarify, with respect to the difference between VAWA and the U visa, you mentioned with VAWA that as a requirement, there would need to be uh, one of the spouses, the the perpetrator or abuser spouse would need to be either a citizen or a lawful permanent resident. Is that the same requirement for a U visa? Meaning if there were two, let's say, undocumented individuals and there were to be uh, a violent action uh, that would occur that would result in um, the this, this substantial abuse san- standard, would that be a basis for, um, for someone uh, qualifying
1: potentially for, for a U visa? Right. So you might find that the individual is eligible for a U visa, but not for VAWA. So for example, in a domestic abuse type situation where the abuser is also undocumented, that individual may qualify for a U visa, whereas they would not qualify for a VAWA-based petition. Interesting. Thank
0: you for the explanation on that. Uh, so, getting back to the, the certification process, as we were discussing, can you give us an idea, maybe, of how long the process would take to um,
1: would take in general? Sure. So California passed a law within the last couple of years that requires the certifying agencies to respond. I think it's within uh, 90 days. And, so they, they, and we're seeing that happening here at the local level in Sacramento. But then that's just the beginning of the process. So once the individual has that certification from law enforcement, that means they can continue with the application. And assuming they're otherwise eligible, submit the application with immigration, well, then what happens? Well, it takes years. So right now we're seeing that applications that we submitted maybe four years ago are finally getting adjudicated. And then when they're adjudicated, they actually don't receive the U visa. And we'll talk a little bit about what the U visa actually is. But a U visa, is a, essentially, it's a temporary visa. You can think of it like a student visa, tourist visa. These are temporary visas. Well, Hmm. U visa is also a temporary visa, but it has, uh, allows the individual after they've been on the U visa for three years to submit an application for a green card or permanent resident status. Congress only allows 10,000 U visas every year. So there's currently a backlog, a multi-year backlog because of the number of people making these applications. So even once the application is looked at by an officer, we'll get a letter back saying, it looks like your application is good. We would like to approve it, but we don't have any visas available because of the backlog. So at that time, that individual is placed in what's called deferred action. And for those listeners who know about DACA, it's very similar to DACA. You get a permanent, you get a work card, and you get uh, some Protection knowing that you will not you're not a law enforcement priority for immigration purposes or for deportation purposes, so you'll get that work card which will last until you're able to get the U visa because your place in the line comes forward. so yeah, it's taking about four years just to get that first uh, first step approved on the U visa, getting somebody to look at the application. And then once they've looked at it, they say yes, it looks good, but we can't give you the U visa yet because there aren't any visas, and that's another couple of years. And so throughout that process, uh, you know, it's we're looking at six years until somebody gets the U visa. Then once they're on the U visa for three years, they apply for a green card. It's a very, it's almost like a lifelong process, right? So it, it takes a, it takes a long time, uh, and the you know there's there's some hardship that is suffered by by our clients in in, in that process. And I just want to pick up on one thing you mentioned. You mentioned that while uh, an applicant is
0: going through this process, that they're not a priority for for law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Would that mean that they would not be subject to, let's say, removal proceedings, all things being equal, assuming that there's not been a crime that's committed or or something like that?
1: Right. Assuming that they are not arrested for uh, criminal conduct while uh, they're in that deferred action status and they will not be placed into removal proceedings. We've seen a few uh, stories with the, uh, the DACA folks, the, the young individuals or not so young anymore that have deferred action through the childhood arrival program that President Obama had started several years ago. There's been some arrests of, of those folks either because, by immigration for deportation when they might have a, like a conviction for DUI, or there's been some very isolated situations where uh, somebody left the country without first uh, obtaining advance approval. And there's been a few isolated reports of um, immigration believing that the individual was uh, doing some other illegal activity, like a gang activity. But All things being uh, equal, the person will not be placed into removal proceedings when they're under deferred action. I see. Thank you for the explanation.
0: Uh, Now, with respect to to the U visa, how are family members of a survivor, um, how does the U visa sort of take them into account? Are they they provided for under this process? Are they eligible for, for relief?
1: Yeah. So certain family members can be included as what we call derivatives on the application. Depends on the age of the principal applicant, but generally, so an applicant who's over 21 years, we're looking at their spouses and their children who are under 21 when the application was started. So remember, this is a multi-year application. So we're looking, the date that matters is the date that the application was filed with immigration. So if the main applicant was over 21 at that time and they were married, then they can include their spouse and their children under 21. What's, what also is interesting and, and a beneficial fact is sometimes we can include what, uh, I hate to use legal terms, so I'll just say, so let's say you get married while this U visa is pending, right, it's taking multi-years for this application to process. So there are ways if the individual gets married while the application is pending, or even while they're under that U visa and waiting to apply for the green card that we might be able to help their, their spouse, their, their new spouse, so to speak. I see. And can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits of the U visa? Now, you mentioned it's
0: a multi-year process. This could take, you know, several years uh, in, in, in a lot of cases. Uh, are there benefits as far as maybe work
1: uh, permit wise or access to social services? Yeah. So for the U visa, once, once you receive the U visa or once you receive that deferred action, you can apply for a work card. Uh, so that was four years after you submit the application, you might get deferred action. And that's, that's ballpark or approximately. But that's when you may be, you be able to obtain that work card. In terms of uh, public benefits, there are there are public benefits available for individuals who are in the U status. So they may be able to apply for both federal and state benefits to to assist them. And that won't harm them when they f- make an application in the future for permanent resident status. Because there's been a lot of uh, uh, information in the news about the the current administration going after people that are under what's called the public charge. So low income, uh, low income individuals or low income in particular immigrants. But for the U visa, if you have the U visa, you qualify for public benefits and you're eligible for them and you should receive them if you need them and they will not cause harm when you're making the application for the permanent resident status. I see. And if there are... Folks out there who have some more
0: questions about the UVs or are interested in maybe applying or learning more, are there any
1: organizations available, any
0: resources that you can maybe direct them to or recommend?
1: Yeah. So I would uh, mention the same ones before ourselves at the Immigration Clinic, the Fuel Network, which if you Google Fuel Network, you'll you'll see it. Uh, There's a list of organizations uh, that are participating, including ourselves. Also, then I would include Opening Doors as an excellent excellent, uh, organization in Sacramento and then uh, the California Rural Legal Assistance Foundation, or CRLAF, as they're known. In the Bay Area, there's also several other organizations, including Central Legal is a great first, first place to look as they're an umbrella organization. And uh, once
0: again, to all of our listeners, we'll provide the information, the, the links to reach, to reach out and contact uh, the Fuel Network opening doors, CRLAF, and uh, Central Legal in the episode description. That's all the time we have for today's episode. Please join us on our next episode for part two of the discussion. Thanks for listening.